morning, seven minutes after 10 o'clock. Glad to have you with us. Uh, we had a call about the uh, stealth jets uh, flying overhead. Uh, the uh, I got a response. It said, uh, read the caller with the flights overhead. Our pilots are required so many flight hours per month to stay active certified. Uh, so that, I'm, you know, I'm not saying one way or the other what that indicates is just a possible explanation uh, for why he's uh, seeing those planes. It may not have anything to do with the Middle East. Anyway, uh, I am pleased to tell you that Professor Murray Sabrin is with us. He, of course, is a uh, professor emeritus at Rampo College. He's the economist that we have on every week to talk about uh, what's going on in the world, and particularly with the economy. I got a couple of quick stories to talk to him about, and then I'll tell you about his most recent column. Professor, welcome. How are you this morning? Very well, Gary. Hope uh, things are well in your neck of the woods. Yeah, because my wife didn't have to remind me that I was supposed to be on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that's yeah. the first time that's happened. <laughs> oh, Lord. Uh, I, I'm, uh, there's a couple of stories in the news. We, we got that report that the, you know, the, the economy was humming along, uh, GDP at four something, four and a half percent, whatever. Uh, and gee, how great that is. And my speculation is that it's the money that, uh, that, that, uh, they got from the government that they're, they're burning through along with their savings. Now I yep. see a story at uh, business insider brace for 8% mortgage rates to drag the U.S. housing market into a 1980s-style recession. Uh, and this is not from some libertarian or right-wing or anything. It's, it's literally uh, from Wells Fargo. But wait, there's more. Apparently, the trucking industry is uh, losing jobs. Their major companies are going bankrupt. Uh, they went out and bought a bunch of trucks because uh, during COVID, the demand for delivery was up. And now it's slowed so much that uh, they can't afford to, to pay their bills. Um, rates are plummeting. Um, the, the one uh, gentleman said last year uh, driving from Pittsburgh to Allentown uh, would have been worth $1,200. This year you're lucky to get $900. Mm. Um, what do you make of all this? Well, uh, th this is what happens during the peak of a business cycle is that uh, certain sectors start to roll over, especially the most in interest rate sensitive sectors. And we see housing uh, has been a total uh, disaster in the sense that uh, rates were uh, well below what they historically were because the Fed pumped so much money in that the 10 year Treasury two years ago was 0.5 percent. It was virtually zero to, to uh, lend money to the federal government. I mean, whoever did that. Uh, it's not looking very good because uh, the value of those bonds have plummeted. And so once you have uh, the Federal Reserve pushing down interest rates, it sets into motion all sorts of economic activities that are unsustainable because it relies on uh, very low interest rates. When interest rates rise like they have for the past few years, then we see all the distortions that came about because of cheap money, all the speculation that has taken place. And uh, COVID, it was, uh, he had the COVID problem on top of that with all the spending that the federal government did uh, uh, in 2020 and through 2022, and you got the perfect storm. And, and we now know the, Fed, uh, the Treasury is borrowing oodles of money to, uh, to uh, make up for the shortfall because they're spending so much money in Washington. Uh, Stanley Druckenmiller, one of the most successful hedge fund managers on CNBC, 
today. He said, we're spending like drunken sailors. And uh, that's uh, that's no disrespect to to sailors because the federal uh, government is just literally out of control when it comes to spending. They have no concept of where this money is coming from. And uh, that's why I think we're going to have a major financial crisis down the road, which I'll be explaining this Saturday in Fort Myers, Florida, at the Missy Circle um, Seminar on the Economy in 2024. It, uh, you know, it looked good, that that four and a half percent, but I, I think they're burning through their savings. Credit card debt is up. Yeah. Uh, car uh, car loans, uh, they're, they're starting to default. Uh, you, it just, it, it all tells me that this is where we're headed. Uh, you uh, have uh, written a column, and, and, it, and anybody can see it if they go to uh, Substack. It's uh, uh, murraysabron.substack.com. And um, you say that uh, Jewish ethics, the state of Israel, surviving the Holocaust, and anti-Semitism. Uh, tell me what's, uh, what, what will we find in this column? Well, uh, I've been wanting to write this column for a long time. But, uh, and then since the uh, Hamas invasion of uh, Israel, it really sparked my, uh, uh, my interest in writing it, saying that uh, we live in a world where anti-Semitism has been around for a long time. And I've always felt, going back to the 1960s, even before the uh, Six-Day War, that to have a Jewish state uh, makes Jews a target, uh, especially in a hostile area like the Mideast. And so I said, uh, what we should have is a secular Israel where everyone can live together in peace and harmony and property rights being respected, which is the essence of the problem in, in uh, Israel, that uh, uh, Palestinians have claims on, on land that they felt have been, have been taken by the Israeli government uh, over the years. And uh, this, and I call for an international tribunal so we can settle whose land is rightly owned by. And uh, that, I think, would solve a lot of the problems. But if Hamas and Iran and other uh, actors say that Israel must be destroyed, well, that's a non-starter for negotiations. What you need to have is a, a nation state where people can live together from different ethnic backgrounds and religious backgrounds. And that is very challenging and difficult, as we've seen throughout world history. And so uh, there's no simple solution, no silver bullet to solve the problem. But I think the first step needs to be that uh, people come together and negotiate in goodwill without any preconditions of let's find out who whose land it was was being has been confiscated and uh, let's sort out the property rights and that is the liberatory solution when you have clear defined property rights then if you violate that you are a criminal and therefore you should be punished or, or, or sanctioned, whatever the case may be. But instead, we have war to settle these issues. And to, for me, war is a non-starter. As the son of Holocaust survivors, I uh, grew up listening to the horror stories of World War II, and we're on the brink of World War III. And if people in Israel, uh, the Gaza, Europe, uh, uh, Russia, China, Iran, the United States, don't come together and settle this, we're going to have World War III. I'm convinced of that. Well, I think it's entirely possible too. When I look back at the history of that area of the world, I, I you know, I see that Europeans uh, just went in there and created all kinds of havoc, uh, yep, carving yep. countries up that uh, they had no business carving up. Uh, the the crushing of the uh, Ottoman Empire, uh, and and I'm not crazy about the way Israel was formed. I, I don't I don't uh, I don't agree with the way it was formed. Uh, or what they did to the Palestinians when they were ushering them off the land. That said, it was 1948. And we're looking at 75 years later. Yeah. It's yeah. done. 
in, and instead of taking the let's go to war and shoot everybody up uh, uh, avenue of, of approach, the, what the Palestinians should be doing is competing with Israel. They should be using their, their brain power to create new products and, good, and, and new services. And eventually that will lead to dealing with Israel and getting along with them. Well, I think that the two-state solution for some people is a non-starter. I think that Netanyahu doesn't want a two-state solution because then it would recognize legitimate uh, concerns of uh, Palestinians. Uh, but uh, again, from my perspective, uh, with the United States as a model, which is not easy to emulate around the world, where we have general uh, social harmony in the United States, it's not perfect by any means, but uh, we have perfect not perfect, but relative harmony, given all the different ethnic, racial, and uh, religious groups in this country. So it, we can, we, we, it can be replicated around the world, but the, the thing is, if people have real, real uh, uh, complaints and concerns about the way they're treated, then you've got to have negotiations to say, listen, we we'll all have to be treated as individuals. And I started my, my subset column by saying, uh, 1967, I was watching a, a Sunday morning program on Passover, and the rabbi was interviewed, he said, the essence of Judaism is the sanctity of the individual. Now that is the essence of libertarianism. And so, uh, thirty years later, when I uh, after I ran for governor as a, the New Jersey Libertarian Party candidate, I was invited by a rabbi to speak to his congregation, and I said, uh, and the t- title of my talk is "Why Jews Must Be Libertarians," because it's the essence of of, of Judaism is individualism and uh, ethics and respect for, for uh, property rights. And so uh, the Ten Commandments spells it out. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not murder, uh, don't, don't, don't covet your neighbor's uh, property, and don't lie, of course, uh, which, is the, uh, which is why uh, we need to have uh, mutual ethic principles in order to deal with uh, each other honestly. And if we do all that, then I think we'll have a much better society uh, socially, politically, culturally, and economically. We can we can only hope that something like that happens. I I don't have great faith uh, that uh, that they want to negotiate like that on either side. I just I wish I were more optimistic, and I don't understand the anti-Semitism. I we've talked about it here at at nauseum. Yeah, uh, I don't yeah. understand it here, uh, especially here. Uh, there's it, it doesn't make sense. Professor, thank you very much for being with us. Great to be with you, Gary. Look forward to it again. Okay. Should should I call your wife next week and remind her to remind? Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Professor Murray Sabrin on the Gary Nolan Show. It's the Zimmer Radio Network. It's 1021. Glad to have you with us. Beth Braley is going to be on board from uh, the Epic Times. We We used to be able to take people who were mentally ill... Uh, violently mentally ill, and we used to be able to keep them off the streets, but we're not doing it anymore. Uh, and a great number of the shootings, the mass shootings that we see in this country, are the result of people who are suffering from pretty severe mental illness. So uh, we'll we'll cover that. The, the column is not out um, at the Epic Times yet, but I think it will be. We'll be the first ones to hear the details of what uh, what transpired. And, uh, you know, when it comes to your safety, this is something you're going to want to think about and know about. In the meantime, uh, Lynn sent me a message. Hi, Gary. Two things real quick. We, too, live in the flight path of stealths, have seen the same things your last caller spoke of. And, two, our middle son is a trucker. The industry, Lynn writes, 
is being taken over by foreigners who are undercutting load prices and making miserably hard for smaller trucking companies to keep their drivers working. Our country is in a horrible, bad state. Thanks for all you do. Uh, I, I think there's more to this trucking problem than than uh, foreigners taking over. B- based on what I'm reading, uh, these uh, these uh, truck companies have a, a, a variety of problems. Uh, people were spending uh, during COVID. You got all that money from the government. And uh, they started ordering things like they never ordered before. And then everybody had to go out and buy new trucks. They were trying to get people, out, truckers on the road, get the, get the products uh, delivered. And then beginning last year, that need started to recede and customers uh, weren't spending uh, on, on those products. And they said that several different things happened in the industry, beginning with too many trucks in comparison to the amount of freight that's available. Uh, He said that truckers and uh, trucking companies uh, got hit hard. The economy is slowing from its frenzy. People aren't buying anymore, and that means there are more trucks on the road than there are loads, and it's forcing rates down. So it's a combination of things. It's inflation as well. Uh, Inflation is a big part of the problem. Truckers are making less per mile uh, uh, in, in peak earnings than they used to. And, you know, if, if, they, if they're suffering, if there's an indication that people aren't buying the goods at the same rates they were, you know, when they were getting the government checks, then there's going to be, you know, it's a, it's a sign of things to come. And you combine that with the housing rates and the interest, uh, you know, borrowing money, buying houses... It's inevitable. And I know the administration uh, wants to tell you that it's great. And I know the numbers sometimes look better than they are. But that pendulum is swinging back. Matthew, good morning. Hello. This is about the trucking story. So there's actually, you know, in St. Louis, St. Louis has a really big Bosnian population for whatever reason. You know, every major city has a lot of a certain ethnic minority I think, you know, Minnesota and, and Detroit have a lot of Muslim people or people from Somalia for whatever reason. Nonetheless, there's a trucking school in St. Louis that caters to Bosnian people. And you can take all these tests in Bosnian or in Russian or in another foreign language. You don't have to even take it in English to get these tests. So what happens is people come over here because they work for a lot cheaper and do it. Um, I know up in Washington State and Oregon State, there's a lot of people up there from uh, Russia and Ukraine move up there and they live up there and they drive trucks and they'll do it for pennies on the dollar and that's the free market at work. Yeah, but now they've got, they had that surge in demand and now the demand has plummeted and in order to keep up with that surge in demand, they made all kinds of investments in new new trucks, new equipment, uh, new hires and they're stuck with that. Uh, it's just, it, it is the marketplace at work but part of the problem has been our response to the China flu and the the ongoing spending that's driving inflation, we've sort of yeah, shot ourselves I, in the foot. Yeah, at some point it has to stop. You know, like when you when you drive through a lot of Mid Missouri and probably a lot of places in America, you'll see a bunch of people that are Hispanic or Amish building houses and building buildings. Well, there you go. I mean, it's 
it's just a free market at work and people want people want cheaper things but they don't want to pay more for it everybody wants police officers and teachers to make more money but nobody wants to pay more taxes so it's just um you're shooting yourself on foot left and right well you you're already taxed to death you're right you know with, with regard to the teachers the schools are getting tons and tons of money it's just not filtering to the teachers no, they, you know, I think most schools work like the federal government is they get allocated a certain amount of money. If they don't spend it, then they get less money next year. So that just, that just incentivizes poor spending. Well, I'm not sure if that's the case, but they get a ton of it, and they do it on all kinds of things they have no business doing. All right, Matthew, thank you. Glad to have you on the Gary Nolan Show. Perfect example of that, um, and this is uh, in the Columbia, Missourian. Missouri education leaders say social-emotional learning guidelines uh, are an ongoing discussion. The story is uh, uh, written by Anna, Annalise uh, Henshaw. It says, Missouri education leaders knew establishing social-emotional learning guidelines for public schools would draw controversy, with some celebrating the idea and others decrying it as government overreach. Well, it is overreach. They're not, that's not their job. The, the job of uh, education has it, it really clear guidelines. It is to teach the basics, teach them to read, teach them to perform math, teach them the Constitution, give them history. Those are the things that they're supposed to be doing. That's what they're supposed to teach. Social programs are not part of teaching. It, it's, it's not something that they're supposed to be involved in. Social emotional learning... 30 years ago, who who ever heard of that? 70 years ago, who heard of that? Nobody. You went to school, they taught you the basics. You found something that you liked and you pursued it, whether it's further education or or work uh, that interested you, and that's how the world worked. Now we're busy teaching kids uh, that uh, their sex isn't what they were born as and... Uh, They've got to accept this, and and they're just way out of line. And instead of spending their time and money on those stupid things, they should be spending it on teaching kids to read, perform math, and they're not doing it. These kids are graduating, and they're functionally illiterate. How much money, I don't care how much you throw at it, it, it's not going to solve the problem if they're not going to teach the class. Just a waste of your money. A waste of your money. Get your kids out of those government schools. All right, uh, Beth Braley is uh, coming on. Since the 1960s, America has closed 97% of its long-term care beds for people with s- severe mental illness. Uh, it's, it's, sometimes uh, th- these people are just uh, too dangerous to manage, and they get turned out on the streets. The families can't handle them. What's going on? How did we lose this capacity to take care of these people? And how does this result in or relate to all of these shootings? If half the mass shooters in America are connected to someone with severe mental illness, this is something we need to look into. That's next on The Gary Nolan Show, the Zimmer Radio Network. This is The Gary Nolan Show. 
1035, glad to have you with us. Glad to be with you. This uh, this story is fascinating to me, and Beth Braley has been working on it. Uh, and uh, this is with the Epic Times, of course, uh, my favorite uh, uh, newspaper, except it's not paper. It's What do you call it, Brian, when it's just not a newspaper, but it's digital? Digital paper. No, yes. there's no such thing as digital no? paper. Yeah, but, Roy will be calling us, <laughs> telling us that. Uh, it is a, a diurnal. It's, it's a daily. Uh, and I get updates from them all the time. But uh, what Beth has uncovered is that half of the mass shootings in this country are connected to someone with severe mental illness. Uh, they're bipolar or, or they suffer from schizophrenia. But we've closed like 97% of the long-term care beds for people with that kind of severe mental illness. Why did we close them? What's the recourse? Let's find out. Beth Braley, welcome. Glad to have you on the Gary Nolan Show. Good morning, Gary. Good afternoon. Yeah, still morning. Still morning. Good morning. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's still morning. <laughs> Almost so, lunchtime, though. It's getting yeah. close. So, first, first question is: You, you write that uh, in the nineteen sixties, uh, we had many more beds. Ninety-seven percent of these are gone. Why? Where'd they you go? Know, when you think ninety-seven percent, I mean that's most of them, right? Well, back in sixty-three, President John Kennedy signed the Community Mental Health Act, and that was, you know, back in the day. Um, and we've seen horror stories and movies and such where uh, it was easy to get into a mental health or a psychiatric hospital, right? But hard to get out. And that wasn't good. That's not what we want uh, for people to, you know, I don't like my husband anymore. Let me see if I can get him committed. <laughs> you, know, you know, something like that. That should never happen. So uh, what they did was they said, let's close down the psychiatric hospitals and create these local mental health care centers. And so they started closing down hospitals, and through the years they've they've gotten now to ninety seven percent have been closed. But most, less than half of these local mental health care for centers didn't materialize. So there's really nothing to replace the mental, uh, the psychiatric hospitals. And it's really what I learned is there's really a, a small number of people that need a small percentage that need a psychiatric hospital for long term. What happens with mental illness is a lot of times they'll have uh, cycles where they're fine and then and then they go through psychosis where they've lost all touch with reality. They just can't tell what is and isn't real. And, you know, like then then they're okay for a while. And, and so um, so it's really very debilitating. But at times of psychosis, um, really, it's their families that are left to work through that time. And that can be very dangerous and it can be scary. And it's, it's just so unpredictable. Anybody who loses touch with reality, you just you don't know what they're going to do. And a hospital is a safe place for them. And it's a safe place. Um, for, it's a safe way for their families to work with them. But their families have no place really to bring them much of the time. We do have some short-term um, mental health facilities, but um, it takes a long time. It could take up to six months for um, the drugs that are needed um, to regulate this, um, you know, to get people out of psychosis and back to thinking right. Um, it could take like six months to get that stuff regulated, but a lot of times they're in and out in a week. It's not enough time. 
and then when they're released, Gary, I'm sorry you keep going on and on, but when they're released, there's not really a plan for what's going to happen to them. So in a lot of cases, they're dropped off, dropped, dropped off at a homeless facility um, or just on the street or, you know, a loved one has to come and pick them up, but the loved one can't learn a lot of information because, because HIPAA rules prevent them from giving the information out without that person's consent. And that person just went through psychosis. They were not capable of signing consent. So it's really a mess. It's kind of a fine line, too, isn't it? I mean, who decides that somebody is so out of touch that they need to be in a facility? Who makes that choice, and how do they conclude that? And Yeah. Because you, know, you want you know, to protect people's rights at the same time. Exactly. And what's ha what, what mental health um, caretakers are saying is that we have gone from, you know, I think in Kennedy's day in the 60s, we were saying, hey, these people have rights and and they do. Absolutely. But at the same time, they need care. And so we've kind of swung the pendulum so far in the well, we have to think about their rights that um, we've forgotten about safety. I'll tell you, if, if you have a family member um, with full-blown schizophrenia and um, and they're you know out of touch with reality, um, they are hard to care for, if not impossible. Some family members make the very difficult choice to turn them out. They cannot have them in their home for safety reasons and they've run out of options. But they love their family members and they don't want to do that. They're just overwhelmed they don't know what to do and they need help you know it there was a time in our country where if you had someone with dementia or severe autism you got no help there was no program to assist the family and it was just the family had to deal with it and that's how it still is with severe mental illness but whenever there's a mass shooting you know, I've talked to some family members who have people in their in their families, like you know, with these issues. When they see in the news a big mass shooting like we just had in Maine, they get scared. They think, you know, where was the mental health um, industry? They should have done something. They should have they should have seen the signs. But the families say, I worry that my loved one could do something like that, and there's nothing I can do to stop it. There's nobody helping me. Well, interestingly, I, I would read these stories, and, and, uh, and I guess I was on the wrong track here, but I would read these, these uh, assailants were on antidepressants. And I started thinking, well, maybe these antidepressants are the problem. Uh, and and you, you see these commercials for antidepressants on TV, make, you know, uh, stop using it if you have suicidal thoughts and all of these things. Mm -hmm. uh, so mm -hmm. I, I was thinking it was perhaps the pharmaceutical causing the problem. Well, it could be if the pharmaceutical isn't um, well regulated. You know, like I said, it can take up to six months to determine if a, how a medicine is really working with any individual. So a two-week stay in a mental health facility is not always enough to see what the long-term effects are. And what if after two weeks you go home and things aren't working out? What then? It's really hard to get into a facility because there are so few of them, you know? And a lot of folks end up in prison where there is no treatment for mental health. So um, 
And also, I think we have to remember there's mental health, like um, depression and anxiety. But then there's another level, severe mental health, and that's going to be your schizophrenia and some versions of of um, bipolar. But um, but and, and we have to say here, not everybody that has these illnesses are going to become violent, all right? But but there's the danger there because they don't they lose touch with reality and and when they can't tell what's real and what isn't they're going to respond to something that we don't even understand so it could be the pharmaceutical scary but um the problem is nobody's legislating around this nobody's making room to help families nobody's really moving the ball on this and they haven't for years uh, a couple of uh, months ago, Beth, here in where my home station is located, they cleared out this large area of the city where the, the homeless were, were living. And, and I mean, the, the conditions were appalling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and many of these people who may not be violent, non, you know, they may be nonviolent, but uh, they are living um, in appalling conditions. And many of them have mental illness. They're not just lazy. They're right, right. It, years ago, I did a story um, on a guy who um, he he couldn't really be housed. He had a severe mental health issue, and people were always trying to get him housed. Uh, his family could not care for him. They had to keep calling nine one one because he would act out. They found a place where he could rent. And he took peanut butter and smeared it on the walls and stuck candy in it and did some artwork and attracted vermin and just made a mess of the place. And they unfortunately had to turn him out. And then he found another place. But in the meantime, he had all these in-between times when he was homeless and severely mentally ill. And he was seeing uh, different things and, you know, would walk out into traffic. And he just, you know what are we going to do as a compassionate society for these folks? There's got to be something between locking them up forever. That's not what we want to do. I think we've decided that as a community. But just saying, hey, family, this is your issue to handle. I mean, there are, I mentioned in my story a woman in her 80s who said, what am I going to do? What's my, what's going to happen to my son when I die? You know, this is the, this is an issue a lot of these people don't have family members because their family members have, you know, passed away or cannot care for them. And we don't have an answer for what we're going to do with these folks. But, you know, people talk about, there's a lot of talk about gun control. Um, but we need to also talk about what are we actually going to do about mental illness, severe mental illness. Well, I don't really think gun control um, is the solution. There are other alternatives for people who want to commit mass murders and they do it all the time. Uh, right. and, and contrary to what the mainstream media will tell you, we are not the leading country for mass murder. In fact, we're far from it. Um, mm-hmm. But um, the mental illness issue would solve a lot of these problems. And if we could just find a way, and as a libertarian, uh, I'm not a Republican, I'm a libertarian, uh, mm-hmm. I'm opposed to the government taking my money and giving it to somebody for their own personal benefit. But I think in, in, in the case of mental illness, this is, 
this is safety for for the community, uh, and I, I don't have a problem yeah. with that. It's a public health issue, you know. When uh, somebody runs in front of your car um, and, and you strike them, that's kind of a public health issue, you know. Now, you've done all this research. When When is the column coming out? So um, we have a special report section on our website, and I'm not really sure, but I'm sure in the in the coming days it will be out. It's uh, they're just it's going through editing right now. But we do have another story on our site that talks about the main shooting and what the family was going through trying to find um, that uh, person some help. Um, his mental health had changed, and they were navigating and trying to find help for him. But, uh, you know, it, it does appear that that played a factor in the, in the main shooting, although I'm, you know, not an expert nor an attorney, but, but it does sound like that, you know, was a factor. So, but my story's coming out in, in the coming days. And by the way, we are available in print as well. Oh, are you? Fact. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You can read our print version by scrolling down to the bottom of the... Uh, website on the left side. Look for digital um, paper, and you, you'll see kind of a whole different epoch times. Very interesting. I, I'll tell you one more thing. The the reason I like uh, a real newspaper is because I love doing the crossword puzzle. Oh. And you guys have a crossword puzzle. Yeah, and we've got a Sudoku and. Uh, we have a we have a really great games section. Our most clicked item on our website most days is the uh, two pictures where you tell the difference between the two photographs. Oh. For some reason, <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I was a kid, we that was that uh, highlights for kids or something like that. I used to see that yeah. in. There. Yep, that's published right here in Pennsylvania where I'm at. Yep. Yeah, uh, you're in. Um, okay, I see where you're at. You're. Not too far from Philadelphia, I think. Yeah. I'm actually very close to Harrisburg. I'm in, I'm in Amish country, Lancaster County. Yeah. So. Got a real good friend of mine lives up there. In fact, I used to be on the radio up there in oh, Lancaster. Oh, Yeah. Wow. All right. Yeah. Beth, thank you so much for being with us, and we will look for that column at the Epic Times, or as you rightly pronounce it, Epoch. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when you guys settle that... Let me know. All right, Beth, take care. All right, it is it is the Gary Nolan Show. We're going to tell you about an auctioneer. <laughs> this is amusing. You'd never believe that they would license that, but yeah, they did. It's next on the Gary Nolan Show, the Zimmer Radio Network. 1055, glad to have you with us. Um, guy up in, in uh, New York was um, doing a charity auction for AIDS or something, and... and um, Apparently, he got lucky because for a while, you couldn't do that unless you had a license to do that. Have you ever been to a live auction, Brian? Yes, I have. Uh, and you see those guys, there, I don't even know what they're saying. I, I'm, I'm always, you know, baffled. I hear what I need to hear, you know, the, the dollar amount and what they're looking right. for. But the fill is just a rhythm that I, I can't duplicate. It's it's a real skill. They actually have classes. They that were Theo's nose was caused for alarm, so dad Wait a minute, wait a minute. Um sorry about that. 
You there? I'm here. Yeah. Uh, I was yeah. kind of startled by the abrupt yeah. video. <laughs> I thought, I thought, oh, he's playing an auction. No. Uh, anyway, they've got their classes where they teach you how to do this. But it's just talking. Why would you need a license <laughs> to do that? Well, because you're too stupid. Pretty much. Auctioneering still requires a license in 27 states and the District of Columbia and a whole bunch of different municipalities. There's a, 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 a group called License to Work. And you, they, they worked uh, with the Institute for Justice to stop this New York law. It cost 800 bucks in fees and more than a year of unpaid apprenticeship experience and coursework to secure one of those licenses. Nine states have doubled down and increased the cost and time and other burdens for people who want to be auctioneers. Now, why do you suppose they're doing that? Because the auctioneers don't want competition. If you've got to spend a year uh, doing unpaid apprenticeship and spend $1,000 in order for the, just to have the right to auction uh, goods, a lot of people aren't going to go through all that. They can't afford the time. They can't afford the money. And so you have less competition. And what happens when you have a limited supply? The price goes up. This is just auctioneers in these states trying to protect their paycheck from competition. I'm sure that when they go shopping, they look for the best price. But they don't want you to be able to when, I, when you go shopping for an auctioneer. These licensing requirements don't make any sense. Uh, the group that stopped it in New York, by the way, is the Institute for Justice. Uh, they do such great work, another libertarian group. The Institute for Justice studied, uh, they, they looked at uh, and reviewed 102 blue-collar and or lower-income occupations and found that these permission slips to work require, on average, nearly a year of education and experience, at least one exam, uh, hundreds of dollars in fees, and, and these are lower-income workers that shouldn't have to go through all this. And that doesn't include hidden costs like tuition uh, uh, for the required schooling. Big government kills everything, including you and jobs. Gary Nolan, Zimmer Radio Network. This is the Gary Nolan Show. 